Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Dr. Jawed Mojadedi is Associate Professor in the Department of Religion at Rutgers University, where he offers courses on Rumi, Sufism, and Islam. A native of Afghanistan, he was raised in Great Britain, where he completed his education, and in the U.S. continued postdoctoral research at Columbia University and Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study. He is the author of The Biographical Tradition in Sufism, and Classical Islam, a Sourcebook of Religious Literature. For his translations of Rumi's Masnavi, he was awarded the Lois Roth Prize for Excellence in Translation by the American Institute of Iranian Studies. He has now published translations of the first three volumes of Rumi's main work, the Masnavi, all in the Oxford World's Classic Series. And his latest book, which we'll explore in this hour, is Beyond Dogma, Rumi's Teachings on Friendship with God and Early Sufi Theories. Beyond Dogma has been published in the UK and is now available in the United States. Jawed, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for hosting me. Now, we've discussed Rumi previously in the show with different um, authors and scholars, and in some ways he's been called, like, I like to think of him as sort of like the pop star of Sufism here in the <laughs> West, <laughs> right? <laughs> but there are different takes on Rumi, and yours is one of them, so we're going to get into that today. And let's, from a beginning place, first just go over for our listeners, who was Rumi? Can you share some about his, his life and his work? And legacy, right? This is actually a, um, a, a more challenging question than it than it sounds, um, because of his popularity. A lot of people want him to be what supports their viewpoint, like anybody popular. But to you know, cut it down to what we really know, the the Rumi that we know is the person who wrote volumes of mystical poetry. What he was before then. Um, we we don't have any writings. What we do have is somebody who was emphatically a mystic and had clearly studied other things as well, including theology and the usual education curriculum at that time. But they were things that he had in his locker that he could use as uh, analogies, as a means for teaching. But But primarily, he was a mystic. Even his poetry, he comments about his poetry that God gave me the skills so that I could uh, teach mysticism more effectively. I, I don't really care for it myself, he, he claims. So I think to be fair, we have to say that he's primarily a, a mystic beyond uh, any kind, other kind of knowledge or uh, skill or virtue. He, he prioritized um, um, his uh, direct encounter with the divine. That, that's what he cared about, the selfless direct encounter with the divine. And... and um, his writings all stem from that period. So that, that's really the Rumi that we can know. Thank you. Now, at the same time, though, when we, when we talk about Sufi mystics, we're also talking about people who are just deeply in, you know, ensconced in daily life. I think that's um, an important 
uh, component here because in other traditions, you know, the mystics are the folks who are hermits or who tend to be set aside. Um, but that's not necessarily what goes on in terms of Sufi practice or Sufi awareness. Could you speak a little more to that in terms of the kind of the social involvement and how people perhaps go on in their, with their daily work? Absolutely. Um, this is really one of the dis- distinctive aspects of Sufism compared to um, other forms of mysticism. It's, it's not a monastic tradition. Um, there is um, an emphasis on practicing and engaging in your um, encounter with the divine whilst living in society. That that is actually seen as the preferred um, way of uh, living a complete life. And um, um, withdrawal is seen more as a, a weakness, um, not being able to cope with um, the, the harder challenges to the self of dealing with other people and uh, dealing with uh, um, communal life. And, um, and Rumi was, was no, no different. Mm. Uh, Thank you for that. Now, you said it's interesting uh, about his poetry. He wasn't that wild about it, but uh, I guess it served as a tool to help others and students in terms of their their spiritual journey. Well, it's so popular, you know, here. and, you know, even in the States, um, the I think the Coleman Barks essential Rumi is probably, in, you know, just a, a almost commonplace in, in our culture and uh, with people having favorite uh, poems. Can you share a little about why his work resonates so much today? I think, you know, first of all, you know, you mentioned um, Coleman Barks, and I think that there is this very um, good match between the translator and Coleman Barks and uh, and Rumi, and it's borne fruit. I mean, he is the the, the most popular translation by far, um, and there are many available. And uh, why that is the case, um, you know, Coleman uh, himself had uh, has has and uh, maintains an experience of the mystical path and Sufism. And he has that kind of understanding, and he's a poet already uh, who can write readable poetry in English of his own, let alone translations. And um, I think it, Rumi's poetry serves this purpose because he writes in a very simple, direct way. He's, he stands out amongst other poets writing in Persian in that he wants to communicate directly without into any uh, intermediary immediately, you know, almost in your face, uh, whereas other poets tend to be more uh, obtuse about things or leave you a line to reflect on when he wants you to immediately have an impact with his poetry. And I think people are receptive to that in, uh, today. Mm, I like that. I like that. In your face. <laughs> <laughs> Pop star in your face. <laughs> well, and the, the poetry is so beautiful. Uh, I mean, just the stunning uh, images that it mm-hmm. creates are, are just so timeless and so sort of rooted in love. Yeah, I mean, Rumi, he... he, he it's a very famous passage, and uh, I was looking at it actually just yesterday for an article I'm writing, where he says that his poetry, he feels like a, a host who has to um, wash tripe and prepare it for the guests because that's what they want, but he himself loathes it. And, uh, you know, which for us <laughs> is quite amazing. <laughs> but I, I think his point is that the, the myst- mystical experience of divine compared to the poetry is so much more. But for him, in relation to that, poetry is, is like tripe. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Very, you know, feet on the ground there. <laughs> I like that in my mystics. <laughs> um, so let's, let's talk about Sufism a little more broadly. Uh, what could you share? What are some of the goals in Sufi mysticism in terms of, you know, if Rumi is writing poetry to assist people on their journey, and, and all the, of course, all the other uh, Sufi masters uh, before him and, and through the orders, um, what is it that Sufis are seeking? Right, well, I think in, in common with, with other mystics, the, the ultimate goal is the d- direct experience and realization of the divine. And how Rumi helps um, followers achieve that through his poetry and in a long tradition of doing so is that Sufis are distinct for making use of poetry, set to music, uh, often accompanied by dance, um, to induce ecstasy as a means for losing this attachment to the sense of self and separateness and inhibitions and, and uh, attachment to one's own conditioning. Uh, the ecstasy, which is why there's so much wine imagery in Sufi poetry, is principal means and method um, that uh, Sufi orders um, um, find useful for that big challenge of getting beyond the barrier of the self. The wine. Yeah, this is this is what they, what is uh, um, understood by references to wine. Mm. Although there's there is at the same time a deliberate um, provocation uh, with something taboo, um, but really it's it's um, uh, in most cases the most wine is there to symbolize that uh, uh, ecstasy through meditative practices mm. such as listening to rhythmic music mm. and the release that getting beyond your own boundaries you know the mm-hmm. there's a lot of wine references in the new testament too <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know we have mir- miracles around wine and of course the theme of new wine in new wine skins you know the mm-hmm. the awakened soul absolutely i like that um, so tell us a little, share, get a, if you could get into a little more detail about the practices, as you were saying, uh, studies, forms of expressions. You mentioned the, the dance. Um, are these practices that go back to the beginning, or did they evolve uh, a little more recently in history? Well, the oldest Sufi writings that we have, they come from the, the 9th century, and that's really when you get most uh, of, of the... Uh, writings from uh, within Islamic identity. Um, and uh, there, the, the first practice that's discussed is actually a practice that, that literally means a, a meditative hearing, so the sama. And this is uh, um, the same term is used for all Sufi use of music for, for worship. So it is as old as Sufism. And uh, the um, the kind of uh, um, theoretical justifications of it are all linked to, um, you know, combination of Quranic verses and observation of nature and the impact of sound on uh, uh, even on animals. And uh, so it's it's not a new practice. It's it's long established practice. Uh, and um, it's, there are a, a minority of Sufis who don't practice these music or have a more Quakerly silence approach, but the vast majority, music is uh, the most common uh, uh, communal practice, and uh, some of them also have a dance. The, the whirling dervish dance is actually very unusual because it's choreographed, 
most Sufi dances, really, it's spontaneous and induced ecstasy expressed rather than planned and choreographed. Oh, well, that's interesting because the whirling dervish dance is the one I think most people would, you know, would associate with the Sufism. Yeah, and that was actually, it, it is designed to be a spectacle. It was, um, that, that Rumi didn't perform that. that that's uh, the oldest references we have to that are centuries after he died in 16th century, and it was performed at the court of the sultans of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and there, it, it sort of teaches Sufism to a dance, a very beautiful symbolic dance about rebirth and um, the dancers are almost like puppets who've lost their self and are just following the direction of an invisible hand. Mm. And uh, so it all represents sort of ideals of a Sufi path, but it's, it was established long after Rumi had passed away. Well, you know, it, it should be said, um, we're coming up on the anniversary of Rumi uh, right now. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, this is um, uh, the anniversary of his death, which is... Uh, um, celebrated in um, uh, at his shrine, and this is common in, in um, the Muslim world for celebration of, of Sufis, the death day, which is described as their wedding, their wedding with God. Mm. But they've finally left the physical body as well, uh, not just the, the spiritual connection during life, but physically they're, they no longer remain. Mm. And in, in, in Turkey and in Konya, his shrine will now, well, in a few days' time, will be packed. Uh, you won't be able to to move um, because it's not only locals but uh, but tourists and sure. uh, you know, they've, they've built a huge new um, auditorium for the performance of the whirling dance uh, mm. at this time of the year uh, not far from his um, uh, tomb and um, there'll be a lot of activity to um, commemorate they probably televised on live on Turkish television it's now, a very big event this is over 800 years now yeah yeah 800 celebration was a few years ago that's right right and, and where is his tomb it's in Konya in uh, central Anatolia in Turkey yes. today. and uh, it's this is an ancient city um, where Rumi ended and his family ended up settling I mean, he originally came from uh, closer to where I come from in the region of um, the city of Balkh which is in northern Afghanistan near Tajikistan border and he came from the, from the region of, of the, around that city because people referred to him as Balchi. Um, and uh, his family migrated and eventually settled in, in Anatolia. And that, that's where he died. And this, this tomb is uh, um, well maintained there today. Mm. Thank you so much, so much for that. Now, in the, in the larger picture of things, how would you describe the relationship of Sufism to Islam? The larger, right. the larger religion, the tradition. Mm -hmm. This is a, this is a, a complicated. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Com it's complicated. <laughs> I, what, I, what I would say, you know, looking at Rumi, since he's the person we're talking to, we're talking about. He was uh, groomed as a um, religious scholar by his father. It's clear we know that not just from later hagiography, but in his own writings, he uses a lot of references that only um, people who studied theology and jurisprudence would, would even know about. Um, but he also saw that as um, he criticized those who, who remained with that. He, he believed that the importance of, uh, he says that uh, the specialists in theology, they can tell you about everything, whether it's uh, forbidden or um, allowed, halal or not, or kosher or not, 
uh, but they don't know anything about their own soul. They missed the whole point of life. Um, and uh, his, you know, he um, considers those who have closeness to divine and mystics that they are beyond the um, theories of the religious scholars. The, their rules and their doctrines don't apply to them. That's something there for keeping social order and has a good purpose for keeping social order and maintaining communities according to rules and, and dogma. But as far as mystics are concerned, mystics are beyond all of that. And he's very emphatic about that in his own writings. And that's why I say that he's, he is, uh, was primarily a mystic and he, he saw this as something within people's souls, whether they are Muslim or Christian or man or woman or whatever. Those other outward aspects are not, um, the soul is not gendered or divided by religion, uh, as far as Rumi is concerned. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I Thank you. And that the the ability to grow along Sufi, in, in along that, that journey, is available to all as well. Absolutely. As I've learned, almost like what people have called Buddha nature, you know, like everyone has it and, and the capacity. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a, a passage in his discourses where some of his own students, they, they criticize him or they question, why did you bother talking to the Christians? Why, why would they understand um, what you have to say? That even Muslims find it difficult what you have to teach them. <laughs> and, and then he says that, well, all people are um, have that same aspiration. They understand and their um, the soul is, is it's beyond these distinctions. He says that this compares it with mm. water coming out of a spout. He says before it comes out of the spout, it's not divided. Once it comes out of a spout, then the water takes a shape, and then you can call it Christian, Muslim, or, or faithful, unfaithful. But before that, those divisions don't even exist where it really matters. Right, right. And it's it's interesting to me in terms of the timeline that around the same time, you know, 12th century, 13th century, there are some huge developments across, you know, religious lines in terms of, you know, the Franciscans Mm -hmm. evolving, and then, you know, there's Rumi, and there's another, you know, tradition of Buddhism in, in, uh, in Japan, and and it seemed like there, there's just a great wave happening around this time. And the mystical aspect of it, when we talk about Rumi and Sufism, is what always emerges for me are the images and the symbols and the way that mystics can communicate with each other across lines. Because a lot of the same images come up in other mystical traditions. Oh, yeah, and Rumi has, has no qualms about uh, using stories from, from other traditions. I mean, he even tells us his sources. He's not even, it's not a, uh, um, an attempt, any attempt to even hide it. He uses a lot of stories from Kalilia, Dimna. He's, he's, he's made famous the story about the elephants in a dark room, but you know, that existed in the Buddhist tradition long before Rumi. And uh, he um, also says many provocative things about Muslim theology that, that, that he, I think Muslim theologians wouldn't, wouldn't accept. Because what what makes their religion distinctive for them is that everything ends with the Prophet Muhammad, and the Prophet Muhammad has uh, um, the highest status of of all that cannot be reproduced later. But then Rumi says that uh, people after Prophet Muhammad, the mystics, they they received the same kind of knowledge. And uh, it's not a problem to say that, he says, because they all have inwardly, they're they're like inwardly... um, um, Muhammad's themselves, they have the same character. It's, it's not a historical person of the 7th century that you have to just go back to, but it's, it's what that person represents for, for everybody. Uh, and they have to find their own. And, 
um, and they can draw on the same kind of inspiration. These things theologians of any religion will have serious difficulty with, and, and Rumi knows that because he was one. Um, but he he writes about this repeatedly. That's a very interesting point. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very interesting point. Thank you for that. Now, I want to bring up a, a quote here that's one of your favorites, so I'm going mm -hmm. to say, um, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. This is one of your favorite quatrains translated by Coleman Barks, I believe. What does it say to you and to us about this field? Yeah, I, I, um, I began my, my book, Beyond Dogma, with, by quoting this. Um, the reason I quoted it is actually, I believe it's the most popular verse um, poetry quoted in America today. Not just uh, that I, I like it, but uh, in, in North America, and especially for weddings. Um, and I'm, I'm quite familiar with it because I've had people contact me and ask me what's the Persian original and how accurate is it and so on. Um, it's, the Persian original that does um, give a slightly different emphasis, but it's, it's not inaccurate. Um, but the Persian original makes it clear what the woman is referring to is is mystics rather than bride and groom or uh, anything else. And it's the mystic and God. Like Rumi's uh, um, death anniversary is referred to as his wedding. It is a kind of a wedding, but it's it's the idea that the mystic, when the mystic encounters God, that's beyond, and uh, the words that are used um, here are, you know, faith and unbelief, um, right doing, wrong doing. It's beyond all of those things. When the mystic is, has reached that, that uh, goal of reaching God, um, one cannot judge them according to um, theological dogma that, that the scholars have theorized. It's, it's way beyond that. Their, their th theories are, are guesses, stabs in the dark. The mystic is there. Thank you. And I can see why a bride and groom might want to utilize this, mm. uh, this yes. in terms of being you know, beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. Uh, you know, that kind of almost refers to you know, forgiveness and such in relationship. But mm. also, beyond the ideas of, of the law, this, what's, it's what it speaks to me. Yeah, that's um, exactly. that's the, the laws, you know, the wrongdoing, the rightdoing, the, the categories, the moral categories, um, of, re of religion and spirituality, They're, they are one thing, but then there's this field. And I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful image of, of meeting you on a field beyond these categories. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently that is what really, really motivates Rumi. Absolutely. This is uh, it's something that he, I think, felt acutely because he, he'd come from that background. He, he was a seminarian. And uh, so he, his life was impacted when he met his mystic uh, mentor and uh, who was so different to the, the seminary culture that he came from that the people from that culture um, couldn't accept him. And they, they tried to kill him and they drove him away. But Rumi maintained his loyalty to him and his mystic way. And uh, um, his dealing with his past and upbringing and this, this new experience, his decision was to 100% um, advocate the mystic way as being far beyond what seminarians can ever um, reach. Yes, and the, the goal of the mystic way being this oneness or this, this union with God that's beyond these categories? Absolutely. 
that direct encounter with God, which for the Sufi is, um, and you know, generally in the Islamic tradition, um, for the mystic image of Muhammad, is the idea of losing completely one's will in the divine. That one is moved when when one has that encounter, one is moved by God in it, and wants every action and thought, and that there's total surrender to the divine. And the whirling dervishes are a good representation of that. If we if you we've probably all seen them if you remember how they dance it's as if they're almost like puppets that somebody is pulling the strings that but it's it's what it's a surrender but there's a lot of effort into reaching that point where they're just surrendering and and moving and dancing with this invisible dance partner um but who's leading the dance uh and that's a good representation of what the sufi life is about it's it's being totally in harmony with that divine force and fulfilling what is required at every given time mm. the ultimate goal and that and that's beautiful just the image of the 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 whirling you know white robes and and it whirls like everything whirls in this galaxy it's all whirling <laughs> in circles um now let's say okay so we're approaching that place of surrender this union with god what then for for rumi and and for sufi practitioners is the goal then the uh, the soft heart, then the compassion going forward in all things. Yeah, the the the, um, the achievement of that union of God is only achieved through selflessness. And what selflessness enables the the Sufi is to put aside their own needs and to be there for others with compassion, with love, with service. The thing that 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 stops us from being able to, to be there 100% for others without any expectation for oneself, to, to simply to, to, to serve and to fulfill what is required at any given time, is our own self. But that, that self is, is the problem. Once one, one overcomes that self, um, there is only God. As one Sufi that Rumi admires, Halaj, had said, the, the whole path, people talk about many stations, but really there's only one step. You to step out of yourself, that means you're stepped into God. And uh, um, what you achieve through that is is being able to give love selflessly in every direction, in every encounter, in every way, and to fulfill at every given moment what needs to be fulfilled because all of your concerns about your own self, which take you away from that, um, they, they've gone. Thank you very much. Now, Jawed, let's talk a little about your journey because um, it's pretty extensive. And now, you were born in Afghanistan. Yes, that's right. Yes. And I, how long did you live there? I was five when um, my um, mother um, left Afghanistan, and uh, uh, we—I haven't actually been back. Uh, mm. And we, I was very one of the very fortunate people of my generation because this was before all of the troubles before the Russian invasion and the resistance and Taliban, everything. I, um, most of my generation have suffered such brutality in that time that I, I almost feel guilty that I escaped it all through. You know, I was too young to know what was going to, what was going to be happening a few years later. Mm. Uh, yeah. And then, so you went to England. Yeah, actually um, I went to Great Britain and the first place actually was uh, in Scotland in Glasgow, but the, um, I was there right to, the time to begin school and I essentially I stayed there for my my whole education and then I ended up coming um, to North America afterwards when um, for work so that's, that's uh, how I ended up uh, here in New Jersey 
And and how and what was that like? The transition from Afghanistan to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I was I was very young, so I I um I have only very fond memories of Scotland. I was uh, um had such good neighbours. Um, in all my time in Britain, uh, so many good people really looked after me, and my mother was working and and. Uh, um, Later on, when I was on my own for a while, I um, I have only good memories, and I had an interesting perspective in Scotland because I lived in Glasgow, where at that time Catholics and Protestants don't live in the same um, um, neighbourhoods. I was obviously I'm not a Catholic, so I went to the Protestant school. You only you can only go to the Catholic school if you were a Catholic. Um, but the block of apartments that I lived in was a Catholic apartment block, and there was no rule against that because I was not a Protestant, so I, we had no objection. And uh, so my birthday parties were, were when the, the Catholic and Protestants of the neighborhood actually got together. Otherwise, they, they lived really very separate lives. And I, I noticed that when I was young because I couldn't say that I, I liked the Catholic soccer team in my school. You just couldn't say it. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to pretend I liked the, the, the Protestant team. <laughs> Oh God, that's like the Red Sox and the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, I think I think things have improved. That was the seventies, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, it was it was um, it was it was I was very lucky. It meant that I I could get on with everybody because I wasn't from you know I was obviously I was living in both worlds at home and school were totally different. Huh. Well, that's very interesting. It sounds like you know in general your role has been to somehow you know be a bridge in some ways. And and so how then did you get interested in in the work that you are doing and focusing specifically on, on Rumi. How did, how did this work come out of your journey and possibly uh, give back to it? Um, it's, it's actually um, it's a relatively surprising story for me. I, um, you know, when I was uh, uh, 16, um, somebody told me that I should read some books about Sufis. I was actually a, a Quaker. I'd gone to a Quaker meeting with a school friend who was a Quaker, and they heard us from Afghanistan. And uh, by chance, the local bookstore happened to have a used copy of that really obscure book on, on my way out. So um, that's something that I, the that first thing from my part of the world that really um, attracted me and drew my attention. And then uh, when I went to college, I discovered that this is a living reality. And, and I went to college to study um, Middle Eastern studies. And so my, my own... Um, um, academic work also focused more and more on, on Sufism. I didn't actually work on, on Rumi until um, coming to America. And um, that was originally simply a, for, as part of an anthology because my, um, my doctoral advisor had passed away and this was a work that he'd started that we wanted to finish. And I knew that um, he'd want Rumi to be included and that he'd want it to be translated in, in a certain way because um, he had strong opinions about that, and so I, it meant I had to work hard at it and sp- spend a lot of time thinking about Rumi. And um, then people said, "Why don't you?" Um, and there's there's a lot of interest in this, and there's a lot of things that need to be translated. So I ended up following that direction. That sounds just so inspiring and connecting you back to you know your roots, but in a different way. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was. It became quite dramatic when I. Um, I was working at Columbia University because 
uh, I was there on 9-11 in, in Manhattan, but I obviously in Columbia was far from um, the Twin Towers. And uh, But those those several weeks after that were, um, were I mean, a big impact on me, coming in every day on the train from New Jersey, watching the, the towers still smoldering, the smoke everywhere. And, and more significantly, that at that time, Afghans were, were hiding their identity. The restaurants were hiding their names. And the, the time when the Taliban were still in power, it was the worst possible thing you could be with an Afghan. But at the same time, Rumi was, uh, was so popular. It didn't affect popularity of Rumi at all, even though he comes, came from that part of the world and Afghans love him just as much Americans love him. So the sense, uh, it gave me an extra purpose that there is this so much common between people in North America and Afghans that they were not aware of, that, that is tangible. You can see it through book sales. Um, and um, that gave it even more impetus to my work to think that there's something not just for a resource for mystics, but also for people in general to, to understand how much we are alike um, through Rumi's poetry. This is, a, this is an important bridge. That's a very powerful comment. Thank you for that. We're about halfway through the program now. Uh, we're going to get into your book when we come back. I'm going to just take a short break for a program ID. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Jawed Mojadedi, author of Beyond Dogma, Rumi's Teachings on Friendship with God, and Early Sufi Theories. Stay with us. Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to be free. Small and to arrive. 
Dimitri Elvis. Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You are live with CARE, and we're speaking with Dr. Jawed Mojadedi, author of Beyond Dogma, Rumi's Teachings on Friendship with God, and Early Sufi Theories. Jawed, that was a wonderful uh, first part of the program, and I thank you again for that. Um, in this part of the program, I'd like to get more into your book now. Uh, that's newly uh, released in the United States, and just ask you uh, in the first place, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, what is it about Rumi uh, that you would like readers to know or understand better? Really what, what inspired me to, to write on this theme, um, I'm, you know, I was in the process of translating Rumi's major work, this 26,000 verse mystical poem, the longest mystical poem, uh, single authored mystical poem ever written, and uh, I realized that the major theme in this poem, and also the major theme that most people associate with Rumi, is this notion that that is uh, described in um, in its Islamic context as friendship with God. This is really to do with another way of describing it is closeness to God, the intimacy, uh, the 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 direct uh, relationship with God that the mystics aspire to. That this is really what. what what um, is central to um, to Rumi's writings, and also what people who read Rumi are are interested in. This you associate Rumi with this emphasis on God's omnipresence and imminence and, and everything, and uh, closeness. Um, um, that uh, all of this comes under the notion of friendship with God, uh, and uh, it's not just Rumi, but other Sufis. For it's really the basis of Sufism. Um, as you say, despite Rumi's recent emergence, okay, as the best a best-selling poet in the English-speaking world, there are fundamental questions about his teachings. For example, such as the relationship of his Sufi mysticism to the wider Islamic religion, and that these things remain contested. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the the main debate um, that one comes across is because Rumi was a seminarian, and he does use a lot of that knowledge in his mystical writings, um, there are some people who may would insist that um, um, Rumi was teaching something only for Muslims, and non-Muslims have no business with what Rumi is teaching, um, and to become a Sufi, one would have to accept everything the Muslim theologians say, and that's because he, he uses a lot of material that comes from that kind of a background. What I've noticed in my readings was that he uses that kind of knowledge, but not as an end, as a means to teach mysticism to, to his audience. And his audience were the seminarians from the same background that he had, who were students of his father that he had inherited. And he didn't abandon them, but he tried to help them learn mysticism through the language they understood, which was the language of seminary study. And I find, I've now translated half of the Masnavi, so I've read all of that really closely, and I've also read, obviously read a lot more. Um, I find not a single instance where he advocates following the teachings of the theologians. The way, way he, but at the same time, he does use a lot of references um, as analogies to help people understand more complicated mystical ideas. And the debate that's contested is that because he uses a lot of Quran citations and references to theology, it's one side saying that, well, that, you know, obviously he required everybody to be Muslim, and this was only a teaching for Muslims, and uh, this, 
interpretation of Rumi from translators like Coleman Barks are somehow distorting all of that because they leave those bits out. And uh, I, I argue in my book that um, not only is that not accurate because Rumi's teachings are emphatically mystical and he contradicts basic theological dogma, um, but also that he's not alone, that Sufis since the beginning of their history have been like Rumi only for the sake of harmony in society and survival in some cases, they have found ways to present their mysticism as being compatible with the theologians. But they've never promoted the theological approach as as a preferred way or, or as a, a requirement. Um, that, that's basically what my book argues. And your focus returns to Walea, or what you call friendship with God. Yeah, this is, I mean, the oldest, actually the very oldest writings of the Sufis from the ninth century, um, they are up about this theme. That's, that's why I said this really is the basis of Sufism. And those writings are concerned with an issue which which can show you how, um, and why it's, it's, um, it's a contested matter, because they're concerned with the issue of which is superior, the friend of God or the prophet. And in the Islamic tradition, this was quite a scandal. Uh, so those, the oldest writings we have, they show that there was a debate and they, they take the side that the friendship with God, the friend of God can never be superior um, to the Prophet Muhammad. But, it's, but they're, they're referring to people who view a different uh, viewpoint and they make it possible that the friend of God can reach the same levels hmm. and have, have the same experiences but not go over. So the Prophet Muhammad becomes like the bar and uh, yes. represents the ideal, uh, ultimate mystic, and uh, anything up to that point is uh, is open, always. Um, and so friendship with God actually helps you to become closer to Muhammad. Yeah, and, 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 and Muhammad as representing the, the, you know, the ultimate mystic, uh, uh, that, that uh, ex- exactly, that the way to... to, to um, following in the mystical path of Muhammad is to to attain more of this closeness to God. That, that's, that's exactly it. Um, now, when we talk about this closeness to God or union with God, um, is it the same thing as talking about friendship with God or a friend of God? Yeah, I mean, the dif- different uh, uh, terms are used, but the term for friend of God, uh, the wali and walaya, which you mentioned, friendship with God, the root meaning of that word in Arabic is to do with closeness. It also is to do with um, um, patronage as well. Mm. And so it, friendship with God is usually how it's translated. Sometimes people translate it as saint because mm-hmm. of, uh, it's not a prophet, but it's somebody holy. Right. But it's not, it's not really, um, that's not such a good translation. I think uh, even though there are more syllables, a bit longer, friendship with God or friend of God is, is, uh, um, avoids giving the kind of um, Christian connotations of sainthood that right. are not there. Right. Um, I'm just sort of sitting in the friendship with uh, God idea. It's, it just seems to be the complete foundation of Sufism is this closeness and attaining this closeness uh, with God. Now, how does this differ? You mentioned the saints, so uh, in the let's say the Christian tradition or other traditions, um, there are shrines uh, in in the Sufi. Uh, in you know life, there are you know saints and shrines and people recognized and and celebrated. We talked about Rumi earlier, and people meeting at his tomb. 
um, in Turkey. And how does it differ then in terms of like when we consider saints, let's say in the Christian tradition, what are, what are the differences there? Well, one of the differences is that uh, there's no um, uh, appointment or canonization process. Uh, somebody is considered a friend of God because people believe it's, it's more sort of bottom-up. People believe in that person and they venerate uh, uh, that person. But there's no official canonization process and uh, the, no- the notion of um, saint has this uh, uh, assumption that there's something organized, a certain list of, of who is a saint and who's not, and it's all it's relatively organized, how you qualify and, and how it's determined. And uh, that, that's not the case. The, the other thing is that uh, friendship with God is open to everybody. And a saint somehow can give the impression that uh, it's something um, that is only for, for a specific elite. Uh, this is historically changed. I think the oldest Sufi writings they do refer to friends of God as as an elite, but Rumi is, is a good example of somebody. His whole thousands of verses, the whole point of them, is to encourage others to develop their own friendship with God. Uh, so it, it's a, a much more widely available, open um, understanding uh, than in than in the. Um, the Christian understanding of sainthood, and people can partake in it, and there's def- uh, it's not a, a saint or nothing, uh, but that's that, that aspect of a human being that that uh, is a bridge with the divine, that that is what really wants people to look in themselves for and to develop and nurture and to partake in, in friendship with God to their capacity in that way. Mm. And you know, earlier, it's interesting, you mentioned the Quakers, that you had a Quaker friend who said you should mm-hmm. look at Sufism, and in the Quaker tradition, I think the understanding of a saint is pretty much the same as in yeah. the Sufi tradition. It's not like the Roman Catholic saint where someone produces several miracles and such, but we'll get to that later. Um, but that it's more uh, in, ter- in tune with, you know, someone who's living the, uh, the right life and, you, and is, is aligned properly, uh, you know, with, um, with, with the divine. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, don't they call themselves the Society of Friends as well? Yes, exactly. I, I don't the know Society of Friends. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's very interesting. And there's no particular um, hierarchy in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, that's that sort of same, uh, you know, authoritative hierarchy. It's more like a circle of elders. Yeah, absolutely. I think, isn't that you know, interesting? I, yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time actually with, uh, with Quakers and through my friend. And uh, that there, that emphasis on the direct uh, inspiration of the divine through meetings, causing people to speak in the silence and so on. Right. And there's a lot of commonalities. It's, I mean, like most mystical traditions. Um, and I suppose a big difference would be that in Sufism, um, the aesthetic dimension and music and poetry and so on is, is so strongly emphasized in most right. Sufi orders. Um, but but I, th- I think you're right that there's, there's a very... Um, big emphasis um, on that uh, direct mystical experience and an ongoing possibility for everybody. Thank you. Yes. Now, can you share a little bit from uh, one of the topics in your book is about friendship with God and miracles. Mm-hmm. You want to share a little about that? Right. Well, um, the, the main qualities of a friend of God um, in the writings of oldest 
Sufis were similar to those of prophets, uh, in that prophets were believed to perform miracles and they were believed to receive communications from God. And so the oldest uh, Sufi writings, they describe how, how the friends of God, they also receive communication from God and they also can perform miracles. And they're... Um, the only way they harmonized it to um, respond to theologians ob- objecting to this is to say, well, that uh, their versions are called by a different name, and so the implication is that they're not quite as great as the miracles of the prophets and the, or the revelation of prophets. But Rumi actually dismisses that distinction. Um, however, what Rumi has to say is that all of these miracles, so the only real miracle is to wake somebody up to their own spiritual capacity. That's that's the only miracle that counts. And so, um, just all these amazing marvels you see in the world that people can produce, the point of them is is simply to waken up that that part of you to the possibilities um, that that are there within every human being. And that, and that's why the, the friend of God might um, show some of these miracles. Uh, um, to you, but, but he's, he's relatively just dismissive about them. He sees them as a kind of a trap. Um, other Sufis saw them as a sign of, you know, like a sign of sainthood. But for Rumi, he says the only purpose is, is to to help you to to acquire that friendship with God too. And the miracles that he talks about, which um, in his stories are essentially the, the notion that the friend of God is protected by God so that whatever that friend of God needs at any given time, it will come to them. They don't have, they, they, everything is uh, taken care of by God for them. At the same time, they take care of God's work for God. And but that's, that's kind of, that's where the patronage notion of friendship with God comes. Um, that uh, they do things in this world, they carry out what God wants to be fulfilled and their self, their ego doesn't come in the way in terms of service and, and love and compassion for people, they, they fulfill all that. At the same time, God provides what they might need at any given time. It will just come. And Ruby talks about how you can experience this if you're near a, 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 a holy person, a friend of God, you'll notice the things just fall into place in an uncanny way. And this is this is a sign of friendship with God. Mm. It's not, not amazing, you know, birds appearing in someone's hand or whatever, but just ordinary things, but everything just happening perfectly in place in some kind of uncanny synchronicity. Mm, yes, that's faith. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we were talking before about mysticism sort of conne- helping to connect to other traditions, and as we've talked, uh, things have come to mind, like, for example, uh, Teresa of Avila called prayer just a conversation with a divine friend. And this theme of the friendship with the divine, you know, cuts across the mystical traditions. And somewhere in your in your work, I know that you were exploring something, uh, the idea of the perfect mystic. Um, would you share just a little bit about that? I know we're kind of getting close on time here, but I just love to hear your concept or exploration of what is the perfect mystic. Okay, um, a good example actually, where it, the basis of it all. There's there's a story in the Quran, in the surah, in the chapter of the cave, where. Moses asked God, the prophet Moses asked God, you know, take, take me to somebody who has more knowledge than I have. And, and God gives him the directions and eventually he finds somebody who's described as having direct knowledge from God and special mercy from God. And then 
this person tells Moses that you don't have the capacity to follow me. So he's telling the prophet, and Moses is the most frequently mentioned prophet in the Quran, major prophet, telling him, you can't cope with me. And then Moses insists, and then he's okay, but um, if you question me about anything, then um, you have to go. And uh, Moses fails. He questions, he can't understand his actions because his actions are illegal and illogical. Um, you know, he damages property, and, he, and he's nice to people who are abusive to them. Everything is upside down. And um, in the end, this person tells Moses, um, you have to go, but first I'll explain. There was a, everything that I did at first sight seemed illogical or abusive and illegal, but actually God wants these things. Everything was for a greater end. I'm just doing what God tells me. I don't, there's no questioning on this. And that individual who's usually known in, in the Muslim tradition as, as Hez, the green one, um, he represents the mystic, all the mystics um, uh, see that as the ultimate model of somebody selflessly, without questioning, just fulfilling what's required at any given moment at the right time. And everything is in, in, in total harmony. Uh, because the self has gone away, and and that that is the the kind of uh, um, ideal of of a mystic. To, mm. to be, when the self is gone, we we are able to um, fulfill our capacity for the, um, doing divine work. Um, and mm. a, a Sufi leader once said to me, you know, you look at the flocks of birds in the sky, and there's a huge flock of birds of hundreds, and and none of them bump into each other. But in the sidewalk, two people can can pass each other without bumping into each other, um, and it's that kind of total harmony being completely with the divine uh, will that is the, the ultimate um, realization and fulfillment of of, um, of Sufism, what the perfect mystic uh, would be able to achieve. That be um, mm. the totally selfless tool for the divine will. Hmm. That's just beautiful, Jawaid. Thank you so much. You know, um, the word obedience actually kind of came around in the 13th century as well. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things on the timeline. Um, and uh, it comes from, I think, old French and old Latin, really just meaning to listen and mm -hmm. to, to give ear to. Uh, it doesn't have the kind of connotation it has today. In, in which people take it out of the wedding vows <laughs> here in here in the in the states, um, and it's it just sounds to me as though when we from what you're saying when when the self is out of the way we can actually really listen. Absolutely, and, you know, the, actually the the name for the religion of Islam actually simply means surrender to God. Mm. So, you know, many Sufis have argued that that is. The, the level that it's that's really important is mm. surrender to God. The institution of the religion developed by theologians and jurists centuries after the Prophet Muhammad, like every institutionalized religion, you call we call that Islam as well. But that's something historically developed at a given time. But the the, the core of it is this notion of of surrender to the divine, mm. and that um, and that's a requirement for mm. people who want to follow the Sufi path. But changing one's religion or taking on a new religious identity. That's really got very little value for somebody following a mystical path. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, on that beautiful note, I think, uh, as we enter into celebrating the anniversary of Rumi's death and as we enter, you know, the holiday season here as well, um, I think this has just been a perfectly scheduled program. 
So I want to thank you for for coming on the air. And as we near the end of the interview, I also want to let listeners know that Dr. Moshe Dedi's contact information and book links um, are posted at godspeedinstitute.com. So, Jawed, I just want to thank you so much for being on the program today. It's, It's been a distinct pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I really enjoyed your very interesting questions. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again, or send it to someone, simply go to godspeedinstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.